We've been talking in these weeks about God revealing himself, revealing his very nature in the person of his son, that epiphany, that coming of Jesus Christ into the world, which tells us about the true heart of God. And we've been looking at stories from Jesus' life and ministry, and we've also been for these last couple of weeks looking at portions of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The faithful and righteous life is what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes looks like this. You can expect if you're on the right road for that road to look this way. And today we're going to look at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that just immediately follows the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 13 through 20. And there's a part of me that describes this particular portion of the Sermon on the Mount as the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. I think it gives us a clue for how to read the entire sermon when Jesus occasions a crisis by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, look at the most righteous among you, those who you think are the most perfect, and know that they don't have it. Uh, that what we're talking about is a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness that they are so good at. And it kind of begs the question, if they're not in, then who is? And Jesus goes on to talk about that. We'll look at that today. Because essentially what Jesus is saying is that all of this has something to do with more than just knowing and following the rules. And so let's look at Matthew 5, 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, empower us by your spirit to step back and to contemplate the simple definition of what it means to be your child, what it means to rest in your love, what it means to find our satisfaction in relationship with you and to allow that relationship to be the ordering reality for all of our relationships. To know who we are. 
And so empower us to live into that identity. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past week, I used a portion of this passage in our little Wednesday morning Lexio Divina group that we have each week. And as we did that this week, one of the things that I realized and joked with the group about was that at 65, I feel like I've become the guy I used to roll my eyes at in my early 20s. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that I knew so much more and was so much more certain about so many things in my early 20s. I had the right questions that I was supposed to ask. I had the right answers to those questions. I believed the right things about God, and I had prayed the right prayer to get into God's good graces. And I rolled my eyes at the folks who talked about what I felt at the time were esoteric things, things beyond any of our awarenesses, esoteric things like union with God and Christ or relationship with Jesus or, or inner transformation, things that were not just about thinking the right things, but about being a whole person. For me, at that stage of my life, the real question was, who can give me the map? And if you can give me the map, I'll follow it. Give me the rules and I'll keep them. Or give me the book and I'll read it. Tell me what I should do and I'll do it. Isn't that what faith is all about? Well, we all have to start somewhere. We all have to start somewhere, and when it comes to faith, religion is more often than not the place we start. We might have a kind of moment where we feel like we've experienced God's presence and that puts us on the road, but very quickly we turn the road not into a relationship, but into a set of accomplishments that we have to strive to achieve. We turn the road into fulfilling a very specific list of you shoulds. The you shoulds of religion, the lists of duties and precepts and prohibitions, and that those things will provide the guidance that we need. And this isn't all bad. In fact, Jesus himself says that the law is not something that he's come to abolish, but he's come to fulfill it. And what he means by that is he's come to make it a reality in the way we are and not just a topical application on life about what we should do. Because you see, the law doesn't really change us. It kind of just reminds us of how bad we are at keeping it. It doesn't really change us. It doesn't transform our hearts. And so Jesus gives that thesis in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, as he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that kind of rule keeping on steroids that the Pharisees show you, unless it exceeds that, 
you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The most righteous among you are not righteous enough because something bigger than knowing and keeping the rules is at issue here is what Jesus is saying. Something more than right religious practice is at play. Namely, God's transforming work of helping us to become who God made us to be. As Jesus tells it in the Sermon on the Mount, the faith journey is not sustained simply by obeying the list of you shoulds, but by God's declaration of who we are, why God made us and who God made us to be. We start with an indicative, a fact about who we are, and then we move to the imperative about what that identity looks like. Identity works itself out in action. Relationship fuels the journey of walking responsibly and learning what it means to be identified with Jesus. Identity works itself out in action. And so Jesus says, here's who you are in this text. Here's who you are. You're the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt is for taste. Salt is for preservation. It enhances flavor. It inhibits decay. Salt promotes life and enjoyment. So if you're not salty, you're probably not salt. The very being of salt is saltiness. And so what good is it other than to be dirt if it isn't salty? And something, therefore, that we simply trample on our, with our feet. Jesus is saying quite simply, this is who you are. Discover and be who you are. He says also, you're the light of the world. What is light? Light is a beacon, a city on a hill, something that shines, that, that can be seen. It's noticeable. It's something to which others are drawn. Light is also guidance, a, a way of finding our way, illumination of finding one's way. Light, therefore, isn't lighted in order to be hidden. So shine. Reflect the light that God has shown on you. Discover and be who you are. That's the commission that Jesus gives us, and that's what he's inviting us to do on this journey on which he invites us. Follow me. Come and see. Abide with me. Discover and be who you are. Let God show you how you are both of these things, salt and light. Let God transform you. Let God grow you into who he made you to be. Paul says it very well in, in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. See what that fosters in your life. Peter says the same kind of thing. Come to him, that living stone, that one who is the cornerstone, and let yourselves be 
become living stones and let God build you up into a, a spiritual house. It's about acquiescence to a process that takes place that is not about our striving, but is about our resting in the very heart of God. It's not simply striving for attainment of and memorization of rules that we might obey them. It's about allowing God's spirit to transform our hearts. It's about learning how to love. Jesus goes on more in the Sermon on the Mount immediately after this, and he kind of gives us a picture of what he means by unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, because five times he uses the phrase, you have heard it said, you should not commit murder or adultery or whatever it is that he says during those five times. You've heard it said, you shall not do this, but I say to you, do this. It's heightening the crisis. It's showing in each of those cases how we can probably keep from stabbing our brother, but it's really hard not to curse our brother. It's really hard to have a transformed heart of love, although it might be easy to avoid actually committing real homicide. It's very difficult for us, very difficult for us, to exert and express ourselves in love rather than in disdain for those closest to us. What Jesus is saying is it's not simply about religion, but it's primarily about relationships. Ken Pyle loaned me a book, and in reading it, I was reminded of something that really applies to what we're talking about today. The book is called No Ordinary Men. It is, the subtitle is Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hans von Dachnanyi, Resistors Against Hitler in Church and State. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hans von Dachnanyi were brothers-in-law. Hans was married to Dietrich's sister. And they were a part of a resistance movement, a clandestine resistance movement to Hitler. And they were both executed uh, within weeks of the end of World War II in a kind of vindictive order issued by Hitler. They were executed just prior to the liberation of the places that, that they were imprisoned. And they were both in prison for almost two years as they awaited trial. They were just looking for evidence to try and pin some sort of treasonous act on them or having trouble finding that. And Bonhoeffer speaks of something in letters that he writes, especially to his friend Eberhard Betke, who was a student of his and then became a good friend of his and kind of processes various theological ideas while he is in prison. And you may have seen the book, a collection of those letters called Letters and Papers from Prison. Betke preserved those letters and he processes so much and, and grows so strong in his faith during that time. And it's just an, an amazing kind of window into what those last two years of his life were like. But Bonhoeffer spoke in these letters of an idea that has come to be known as religionless Christianity, which I think speaks to some of what we're talking about today as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. And the authors of this book, they write about this in, in one paragraph that I want to read to you. 
The most controversial aspect of his letters to Betke was, and still is, Bonhoeffer's interest in using them to explore what he called religionless Christianity. He used the word religion almost pejoratively, referring to the outer forms of established faith practices. He thought that most of Christianity's encrusted habits and structures that had been revered for centuries might, even should, be jettisoned. Then one could ask in a genuinely neutral and active way, who is Jesus Christ for us now? What is the meaning of Christianity in our post-enlightenment, rational, grown-up, modern world of people who believe they can manage important life issues without recourse to working hypothesis, God? Did Christ or Christianity mean anything to them? What should it mean? And I think what Bonhoeffer was saying as he contemplated the church's abject failure to do anything more than, on the one hand, with the German Christian movement, assimilate into the Third Reich. On the other hand, to be a part of the confessing church, which was slowly decimated and executed and sent to the Eastern Front by the Nazis, the pastors that he had helped to form to, in a church that was confessing something different than the German church, that it, it was destroyed as well. And so as Bonhoeffer contemplated what had happened and, and how the church had literally just become assimilated into the culture, he wondered what, what following Christ would look like in a religionless Christianity. It's an interesting idea. But it's that idea of examining encrusted habits and structures revered for centuries and understanding that we need to be about the work of promoting righteousness and thwarting evil because we're following the author of good. The life of faith is not primarily about refining and perfecting the rules or promoting and protecting the structures that we use to disseminate and enforce those rules. It's about letting a relationship with Jesus, a journey with Jesus, change us. And the church is meant to be a container of that process rather than a point unto itself. Paul says something as he's struggling with the Corinthian congregation in 2 Corinthians 2. The Corinthian congregation didn't like Paul much because he just didn't seem to acknowledge the kinds of things that they were interested in. And so Paul had to keep informing them that he was about something different than setting up the church that was relevant to their particular culture. And he says in, in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and following, he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. 
Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. We know that God's transforming work is taking hold of us when, as Paul says, we begin to smell like Jesus. And when that whiff in the nostrils of others is either a fragrance from life to life or death to death. The interesting thing about that particular aroma is that we can't help it. It's there. And it gets noticed. And when it's noticed, it will either be pleasing to others or repelling. But either way, what we'll know is that we smell like Jesus and we are who God created us to be. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to relax into the identity that you have created for us, to be your people, to live in the confidence that you are at work in us and at work in our world. So empower us to walk into every situation and ask how that's happening. How are you at work here, Lord, and how can I be a part of it? Empower us to keep following, to keep abiding, to keep resting in your steadfast love. And so equip us to be who you created us to be. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.